Good morning, everyone. I'm fighting a bit of a cold. I'll try not to sneeze on you. But uh, this is the third message in our series called Light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, didn't he? And he came to be a light. He said, those who follow him will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's see how observant you are this morning. How many of you notice that there's this beautifully wrapped package up here on the stage, right? And how many of you are wondering if it was for you? It's not, sorry. I appreciate a package that can be wrapped so beautifully because when I wrap packages, it doesn't look good. I have every best intention, but I can't get it to fold the right way. It ends up being a mess. So I just put it in a bag and hand it to whoever. But uh, this, this is like a piece of art. And it, you look at it and you just go, I don't want to unwrap that thing. How many of you, how many of you are the wrappers? Uh, maybe you're single, you are the wrapper, but your family, all right? How many of you, um, how many of you, like, you look forward to, you enjoy wrapping gifts? Raise your hands nice and high, because those of us who don't need to get see who you are and talk to you afterwards. Well, my wife, Marsha, is a wonderful rapper. She wraps nice gifts, too. And I always feel sorry for her, and I feel, I, I feel kind of bad for those who do work hard at wrapping gifts because on Christmas Eve, or by the way, how many of you open gifts Christmas Eve? All right. How many open gifts Christmas Day? How many open both? <laughs> All right. I always feel bad for the person who puts the the hours into the beautifully wrapped packages because I assure you, if you have students living at home, <laughs> once the whistle blows, it's like, who cares, right? It's just gone and off. It's, it's funny, Marsha was saying, I hope they don't throw the bows away. You're ripping those things off, all right? We won't throw them away. Uh, but, um, you know, we struggle with that, you know, in our own lives. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times we, we work at kind of getting things wrapped up, getting things with a nice bow on it, getting things to just be a certain way. And God sometimes has a habit of coming along and unwrapping it unexpectedly. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Gospel Luke chapter 1. And uh, I want to start reading in a moment at verse 36. I haven't done this for a little while, but we have our, our, our students with us in the service often. So if you're in uh, high school or below, would you stand right now? In all high school, junior high, elementary, preschool, would you stand? Let's give them a hand, all right? Good to see you guys. All right, you can be seated. I, I, love, it when, I love it when our students are in the service and when they draw me pictures especially. Anyway, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39. It says, a few days later... By the way, i got to tell you this story real quick, since the students are in here and, and it won't fit any other place. Um, we got some feedback from the message last weekend. Uh, remember I talked about ice cream? It's amazing what people remember from a sermon. And I, I talked about I taste better eating out of a carton. Well, that uh, was put in front of uh, at least one set of parents this uh, this past week, Pastor Dale says it tastes better out of a curtain, a, a carton. Therefore, I should be able to taste it out of a carton. Sorry. All right. Verse 39. 
A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Mary responded, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy. And he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. God is an iconoclast. God is an iconoclast. You say, what's an iconoclast? Well, you probably forgot. It means literally an image breaker. Fast Company Magazine 2008 edition. We're trying to define what iconoclasts are. And they said an iconoclast is someone who sees things that traditionally minded people can't see. Notice they see things differently, not as they are. And so people like Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, you, others, right? They just see things in a different way, and, and they, just, they just come up with creative, uh, wonderful things that we just never would think about. God is the ultimate iconoclast. God sees things in ways that we don't see them. The Bible says his ways are not our ways. God looks at things differently than we look at them. And while God will never stray from what he's already said, God is truth. God is always truthful. He does things differently than we would do it. And sometimes that's a joy and sometimes that's a challenge because, you know, there are a lot of us who are wired to, in life to try to get things all wrapped up, put a nice, neat bow on it. We want everything to behave that way all the time. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you know who you are. And to a degree, all of us are somewhat like that. And all of us, whether we realize it or not, have a tendency to even want to put God in a box, wrap him up, put a bow on him, and say, this is who God is, and this is how God always behaves. That's why I get uncomfortable with systematic theology, where you put God in a grid, in a system, and God always has to behave that way. Because God doesn't always behave the way we expect. And this is an example of what we just read. I mean, look at Elizabeth for a moment. By the way, when God encounters our life, he tends to make us iconoclasts as well, if we let him. He allows us to kind of begin to look at life differently, which is really good for us. Because I don't want to look at this world the way the world looks at itself. I don't want to look at life the way this world looks at life. 
I want to see it from God's eyes, which is so different than the, t- <clears throat> the typically wrapped up box. So Elizabeth, for instance, chapter 1, verse 7, tells us that she's, she's old now and she's barren. And so the expectation is she is never going to have a child, like Sarah in the Old Testament. But when God shows up on the scene, when God enters the scene, he just looks at it differently. He's not bound by the fact that she should be on childbearing years. And God touches her body and touches Zechariah, and the two of them conceive, humanly conceive, and they have this child, this baby, who's going to become the forerunner of the Messiah. We know him as John the Baptist. Well, that's looking at things differently. Not only that, but if you look at the passage of Scripture that we were reading, Elizabeth is prophetic, isn't she? I mean, when Mary shows up, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, leaps. And it's not just a baby moving in the womb, which, which happens. She somehow knows that this is an intentional leap, that the child in her womb is actually leaping for joy. That there's somehow an awareness of John in the womb of Elizabeth that one greater than himself is present. The one who he says, I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. And of course, doctors and researchers can tell us that within the womb, what a baby knows and experiences and senses is amazing. So where does this all come from? I mean, she even says, she even knows about the baby in Mary's womb before Mary says anything to her. She says, why, why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord, capital L, should come and see me? So where does all this awareness come from in her life? It tells us in verse 41, it says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave her that awareness. Open her eyes, open her mind to know what was going on. So when God contacts our life and we let him contact our life, he just gives a whole different perspective. He allows us to think differently. And look at Mary. Wow, talk about a changed life. Mary's a teenage girl living in Nowheresville, Nazareth. Who's ever heard of anybody great coming out of that town? She's poor. Her life is predictable. She'll get married. She'll have kids. She'll live. She'll die. No one will know about her. Everybody will forget about her. But God encounters Mary, and suddenly she has an unplanned pregnancy. (laughs) And she rejoices about it. I don't know too many teenagers that would rejoice about that. I know the parents wouldn't. I can't imagine what... Mary's parents, how they dealt with it. And seriously, I mean, it sounds funny, but it's reality. How do you go home and explain to your parents, I am pregnant and God is the father of the child? As parents, what would you do if your daughter came home and told you that? You'd flip out, right? You wouldn't believe that. And then she has to deal with all the gossip that's going to happen in the community about her. And her husband-to-be, Joseph, is going to try to quietly divorce her but she rejoices she rejoices and she's quite the theologian if you read that again i hope you will she's quite the theologian where the pharisees and sadducees of her day based their relationship with god on their righteousness on how good they are they keep the law mary just says i'm favored 
I've been chosen. No good reason. God chose me. He lifts up the humble and the poor, and he brings down those who are powerful and rich. He's reversing things. See, God does things differently, doesn't he? He just does stuff you don't expect. And she, she rejoices, and she too is prophetic. She says, the one in my womb, in essence, in that last verse I read to you, is the one who will fulfill the promise made to Abraham, through whom all the world will be blessed. Boy, Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit. Mary's literally filled. <laughs> and it just turns her whole view of life around. They become iconoclasts. All the images, the traditional images are broken. Think about this for a minute. God doesn't choose a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a priest or a king to announce the forerunner of his son and then to announce the Messiah himself. He chooses two women, one too old to have a baby, allows her and her husband to have a baby. One too young, shouldn't be able, shouldn't have a baby, miraculously has an unplanned pregnancy, and they are the ones that announce it. Don't ever tell me that God is down on women. He exalts them. They get to be the great announcers of the Savior. God himself is, like I said, the ultimate iconoclast. <laughs> See, the problem, the problem that the Pharisees, Sadducees had is they had, they had God all wrapped up and figured out with a bow on top of how he was supposed to behave and operate and what the Messiah would be like. Messiah is just a prophetic figure sent by God, a political figure. But God just blows their mind because they don't pay attention to the scriptures. And what God does is God, who's infinite, created space, yet space cannot contain him. God, in the Old Testament, don't touch me, I am holy, suddenly contains himself in a fragile little human body, becomes vulnerable and touchable. And the way, he, the way he conquers the world is through sacrifice, death, resurrection. Jews couldn't deal with it. The Greeks couldn't deal with it. And a lot of people today can't deal with it. Because it's not, it's not the God in the box we want or the God in the box we expect. See what I'm trying to say? So if you're going to be with God, if you're going to be in relationship with God, you just got to expect that God is going to sometimes unwrap and unravel what you... Expect him to be like and how you expect him to operate. It's just not always real pretty. How do you live that way? How do you become an iconoclast, spiritually speaking? I'm going to answer that question by telling you about something Marsha and I did for our kids quite a few years ago now when we lived in California and they were still little at home. I don't know about your families, those of you who are families, have children that are still at home. But in our family, I've noticed that the kids always monitored the Christmas tree, monitored for the gifts that were coming in and being placed under that. Does that happen in your family or not, right? Okay. And I also noticed with our grandkids that uh, because they don't live near us, they send us their, their list of what they would like for Christmas. But because they're fearful that we may not truly understand what they're describing, they also send us digital pictures of it. That way we're clear on which, you know, 
brand or what thing they actually want, and they usually give us four or five options, which I really appreciate. <clears throat> I had a parent, a grandparent actually tell me in the first service that his kids actually send him links to, <coughs> to make it even easier, all right, to do that. So there's an idea for our students, all right? Uh, but don't send me the links, all right? Send your parents, your grandparents, those links. So my kids would, you know, let us know what they would like to have for Christmas. And, you know, if you know what you're asking for, you know how big it is, you know what shape it is. So they kind of watch the tree to see what shows up. And does it look big enough for what we're asking for? Is it shaped a certain way? We're not supposed to shake it. We're not supposed to lift it. We're supposed to leave it alone. Although I'm sure they broke the rules when nobody was looking because I did when I was a kid. And uh, on one particular Christmas, we didn't put anything that matched what they were looking for under the tree. In fact, on uh, Christmas morning when they got up to come and open their gifts, it was a huge disappointment. We could see it on their faces. I mean, underwear, a little bit of clothes, a book, yay, right? How do you get excited about that, right? Because it's not what you want, it's not what you're expecting. But what we didn't tell them is that after the last Christmas Eve service and they had gone to bed, some dear friends of ours came over and we had bought the kids an outdoor trampoline, which in California you can set up in the wintertime and use. And we had bought that for them. So while they're sleeping under the stealth of night, we're putting this thing together in the backyard. They don't know about it. So when they're kind of moping around after opening up what's on the tree, Marsha and I are in another room when they decide to open the drapes and look in the backyard to see what's going on. And when they open it, we know it because we hear this, yay, whoa, and hooting and hollering and screaming and jubilation. Man, I mean, you, you knew Christmas had come then. So we all went out. We started jumping on the trampoline. This is an aside, but I decided to show off. And this is how, you, you know, you know your pride will be humbled. I said, watch this. And I said, I'll show you a, black, a back flip. So I, I, I started my back flip in my head. I didn't clear. My head got caught on the mat. And my knee kept coming. And bam, right in the eye. And, and my eyes watering. It hurts. I go into the, into the house. I look in the mirror. I blow my nose. And like a bullfrog, it just boom, comes way out. Well, it wasn't quite that far. All right, it's more like here, but anyway. Um, so then I spend the rest of the day at Kaiser Permanente Hospital because I broke my orbital, orbital bone and they gotta make sure the muscle's not caught in there. I'll never buy another trampoline. <laughs> you know, when God, when God gives us what we want, when God comes through, when he heals us, when he provides that job for us, when he works out that difficult situation, it's hurrah and yay and yes. Even, even when he does it in the most unexpected way that we could never imagine. We're like Mary and we're like Elizabeth. We're like filled with God's spirit. We're filled with thanksgiving. We're filled with praise. We're filled with joy. We feel favored by God and we should. And we should. In fact, today, as I was going over this in my mind again, I just thought, I need to just do a quick little inventory of all the blessings that God has put in my life. And my soul just welled up with joy. And I just thought, why is it, God, I complain? Why do I do that? Because as I rehearse what you've done in my life, I am so blessed. When's the last time you did that? That's a really good daily exercise, isn't it? To recall those things. 
And it just lifts your spirit. And I just felt so overjoyed and, and, and just so prophetic, you know. God did this before. He'll do it again. And I've got heaven to look forward to. And amen and praise God and hallelujah. He is good and I am favored. I don't deserve it. And I love him for it. Let me ask you a question, though. What happens when there's nothing under the tree and you open the blinds and you look out in the backyard and it's still the same? What happens when the unexpected surprise is not good news but bad news? It's cancer. It's loss of your job. It's your kids rebelling. It's your parents divorcing. It's whatever it is. Do you say hallelujah? Do you say praise God? Do you feel favored? Do you feel blessed? What happens when instead of God adding to our lives, he takes from our life when we experience loss? Is God different then? Has God changed then? What happens when the unwrapping doesn't reveal what we want, but what we don't want, what we don't expect, when God breaks our image of who he is and how we think he's supposed to behave because I'm his child? My understanding of the Bible is God is still the same God. He's still sovereign. He still favors me. He's still in control. And I should be just as filled with the Spirit in the low times as in the high times. But it's hard to do, isn't it? Because we have a tendency to want to keep God in a box. That's not how God operates. I want you to think about Elizabeth and Mary with me for a moment. Because, you know, on the one hand, we've just read their joy, their excitement, their praise to God, the fact they're filled with his spirit. But, you know, if Elizabeth lived long enough, because she had John in her older age, so I don't know if she was still alive, we're not told, but, but if she was still alive, she saw her son, John, beheaded. I mean, literally saw, but got the news. Herod's killed him. And Mary, who in a way, in a way, even though God did an out-of-the-box experience with her, and even though she herself was kind of out of the box because of God, she still had her son in a box. She still expected her son to be triumphant in the way everyone was expecting the Messiah to be triumphant, the way John was, the way Peter was, and all the rest. It must have just been, I can't imagine what it was like for Mary when she saw her son rejected, suffer, and crucified. He's the same God that he was when he sent Gabriel and said, you will conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to Messiah. He's the same God when her son is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the same God. He's the same God in your life and my life when these things happen as well. What allows us to make it through those times? Well, you remember what it said about Elizabeth, and this is also true about Mary, it says that they were filled with God's spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, 
you have God's Spirit in your life. You don't need more of Him. You have the Spirit of God living in you. It's just as miraculous as Jesus in the womb of Mary. Just as miraculous and just as real. But the question is, are you filled with His Spirit? What is the word... What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, read Ephesians 5 later. Read Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8 later on. Read Romans 12, other passages of Scripture. But it boils down to one word, surrendered. And the word surrendered means to yield, to yield the right of way. To be, to be filled with the Spirit is to yield the right of way in my life to God no matter which direction he goes. And the problem is, when God goes the direction I want to go, it's, yay, God. But when God goes the opposite direction I want to go, I, at least this is true about me, probably not you, I usually fight that direction until finally I realize I need to surrender to God. I don't like where he's going. I don't like what's happening. I don't care for how he's unraveling my view and my expectations, but... God is sovereign. I know he loves me. It has nothing to do with how good or bad I am. I know God cares about me. He chooses to love me. And I know God's working out his will in my life. And what is God's will in your life? What was God's will in the life of John and the life of his son? One word, redemptive. That was his will. God gave Elizabeth and Zechariah, that little boy, John, because God was going to use John redemptively to prepare the people. Remember, baptize the kingdom, be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sins, be baptized. And then here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John dies. Beheaded, he dies. Jesus shows up on the scene. The Son of God compassion and miracles and teaching like we've never heard it before. What authority he has, it says in the Gospels, the way he teaches. And the crowds cry out, Hosanna, the king who's come to save. Then they turn right around and they cry out, crucify. And he dies to redeem, to redeem. Redemptive. Redemptive. And the first, you know, it's personal for us because we've been redeemed by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And we love that about God, don't we? We love about what he does for us. But just as God used John and just as the Father chose the Son, it, for a redemptive purpose, God does the same thing in your life and my life. We live for a redemptive purpose. See, it's not just about an iconoclastic view of God and me, but God wants me to be God wants me to have an iconoclast view towards you. God wants me to see the world from His perspective, from His point of view, not mine. He wants me to see my neighbors that way, my fellow students that way, my teachers, my coaches, my professors, my coworkers, my neighbors, people in my family, strangers. He wants politicians, celebrities. He wants me to look at everybody through his eyes. Now, our tendency is to look at them through our human eyes, and when we look at people through our human eyes, what happens? We see their sinfulness, don't we? We see their defects physical defects, character defects. 
We see them as threats oftentimes or competition. And that's what's wrong with the world. Really, it is. And that's what's wrong oftentimes with the church and those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. I mean, honestly, think to yourself. Think about all your self-talk that you do as you encounter people at the store, in traffic, at the mall, wherever you go, at work, wherever it is. Aren't we oftentimes, don't we have a negative narrative going on in our mind about people? It's just, it's just part of this world we're in. It's just, it's there all the time. But God says, don't look at people that way. Don't think of people that way. Look at them my way. Think and look at them redemptively. You know, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, I read that passage earlier. There's some really important verses that we skip, we don't think about. After telling us that God has behaved redemptively toward us, listen to what he says in verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says, And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. If I were to ask you right now, what's your job? You would tell me, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, I'm a preacher, I'm a this, I'm a that. You know what your real job is? You're a reconciler. That's your job. Through your profession, through whatever else you do, that's secondary. You're a reconciler. That's why God left you on this earth. Verse 19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. When I travel overseas, sometimes the, when I'm getting in these other countries, I, you know, there's these cues, right? You've got people who live there, you know, the, the locals. Then you have foreigners, and then you have um, diplomats on the other side. And obviously, I can't go in the line with the folks who live there. And usually, the line for foreigners is really long, and there's hardly ever anybody at the diplomats. So every once in a while, I go into the line for the diplomats because I'm an ambassador. I'm waiting to be asked, by the way, by one of them one day, so what's your role? I'm an ambassador. I'll probably get kicked out after I tell them who I'm an ambassador for. But I'm an ambassador. You're an ambassador. What's it say here? It says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's our message. For God made Christ who never sinned to be offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God, ultimately, ultimately, do you get this? God has called you and me to be reconcilers. Our lives are to be a sacrifice for him. That's why Paul says, you know, I count it a joy and a privilege to suffer with Christ for the cause of Christ. And that's why oftentimes we have a hard time when God tears our box apart and does things in our life that we personally don't want. But sometimes God says, I need you to go through this valley. I want you to experience this because how you experience this is going to show who I am when people realize you're attached to me and not to your things and not to someone, not to your health. When they see that faith in you, it points them to me. So Christmas is not the spotlight on me. It's not 
even really the spotlight on you. It's on the spotlight. The spotlight is on Christ. And when I see God for who he is, this iconoclast that God is, suddenly I see myself in the right light and I see you in the right light. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this Christmas season that you would liberate us from having the wrong view of you and the wrong view of ourselves, the wrong view of others. Forgive us, Lord, for our attempts to wrap you up and, and put you into a worldview that pleases us, that is about us, about meeting our needs and making life comfortable for us. Father, we are in awe and overjoyed for those unexpected blessings that come our way because of your grace, the sweet reminders that you know us, that you love us. But we're also, Father, grateful and, and thankful, though oftentimes it is by faith and not by our feelings, for those challenges you send our way that cause us to have to lean into you alone. For Lord, when, when we experience weakness, and we choose to be filled with the Spirit, we choose to fix our eyes on Christ, then, God, we become incredibly strong. When we live redemptively, when we say, Lord, here's my life, use it. And so we pray, use us in Jesus' name.